young Brazilians Coffee beans grow by the billions So they've got to find those extra cups to fill They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil Hey folks, it's Mark Prince here with the 10th edition, 10th issue, 10th number, what do you call it? Number 10 of the CoffeeGeek.com podcast. The Coffee Geek podcast is the voice of the CoffeeGeek.com website. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, we have a toll-free number. It's 1-800-332-9477. Or you can send us an email to podcast at CoffeeGeek.com. All right, let's get into this. Number 10. Wow. 10 shows already. <laughs> I still don't know where this podcast is going, but I think I think it's pretty good so far. I'm really surprised at the subscriber numbers. Um, right now, I think we have almost 1,500 regular subscribers. And um, I believe each individual show is downloaded roughly about 3,000 times now, at least if my stats are to be believed. Isn't that amazing? Anyways, for this 10th show, um, I suppose maybe you were expecting the roundtable that I promised. <sighs> Not going to happen. <laughs> Not going to happen this show. Um, in fact, this show was delayed for quite a while because I tried finding some time this past week to edit the roundtable. I recorded over a week ago at Wicked Cafe in Vancouver. Brad Ford was our gracious host for that. Problem is, is that... Uh, I need to get a better setup when I'm doing remotes like that. We There's a couple of people who just, their voice patterns are naturally low. And a couple of us, myself included, where our voice patterns were naturally high. It just was a mess. It was it was a mess. So I don't know if I'm ever going to play it. I think, I think I may see if I can pass it on to someone who's volunteered to uh, see if they can clean it up. It was a pretty good discussion, but uh, I digress. And we're already two minutes into the show. So what are we going to talk about on this show? Well, I'm flying solo once again, and this is our first show where half of the show is not going to be about coffee per se, but I'll get to that in a bit. The first topic I want to talk about is something that's been coming up in online forums a lot, and it's a subject of, like, people are asking why even the best restaurants in the United States and Canada do such poor coffee and espresso as a service. And one example that was brought up uh, on the Portafilter.net podcast by Jay Carrigate was French Laundry, which is often considered one of the best restaurants in North America. They say that they have a fairly decent coffee service. And I have my doubts about that, too, by the way. However, their espresso service is it's, it's Illy Pods. Now, should I go on a rant about pods? Maybe I should. The thing is... Pods are pre-ground coffee, and I can't harp on this enough. Pre-ground is death to coffee, okay? You might as well just drink instant coffee. And I'll, you know what? I'm not just going to make the statement. I'm going to explain why. In roasted coffee, there are a lot of lipids and oils which give coffee its unique flavor and taste. The more quality the coffee is, the more unique those lipids and oils are. This is why when we talk about a coffee giving a taste like, you know, anise or chocolate or cardamom or flowers or blueberry or cherry, things like that, those come from a really delicate set of flavor oils and flavor lipids that make it to your cup. Now, how do they make it to your cup? Now, think about it. These are oils and oil and water don't mix. Okay, normally. However, in the coffee, there is another chemical. It's a very common chemical. You've probably heard of it. CO2. And CO2 is the primary flavor transporter. It's the, think of it as the bus for all the flavors to make it from the roasted ground coffee into your coffee cup. Now, when, roast, when coffee is roasted, it creates tons, figuratively, tons of CO2. In fact, when you first roast coffee, you shouldn't really drink it within the first two or three days because there is just so much CO2 inside that roasted coffee and given off by it that if you brew an espresso within the first couple of days after a roasting, um, you tend to notice that it creates just voluminous amounts of crema that dissipates very fast. And the reason why that happens is it's the CO2 and it's evaporating. So all that crema just kind of like goes up in the air. 
The same thing with brewed coffee. If you brew coffee that was roasted only a day or two before, you'll notice that it may make a mess in your coffee maker. And the reason why it does that is because when hot water is introduced to the ground coffee, it creates a big foam on top, which is called a bloom. And the more CO2 there is in the ground coffee, the bigger the bloom is. And the bloom can get so big that it can actually overwhelm the drip brewer and start leaking out over the sides. That's CO2. Now, when you hit about four to five days after roast, that's when the CO2 levels are sufficiently low enough that they're going to do the job you want them to do. Let's talk about grinding and pre-ground and CO2. When your coffee's at the prime age, four to five days off the roast, when you grind that coffee, all that CO2 that's going to act as a flavor transporter, scientific studies have shown, and these are really intense scientific studies. In fact, one company famous for this study is Illy themselves. They know this information. They published it in a book. In the first minute after coffee is ground, it will lose up to 80% of its stored CO2. So the key is grind just before brewing a shot, grind just before brewing coffee. And the reason why you want to do that is because you want the CO2 to do its job. You don't want the aromas and the flavors in the air. You want them in your cup. And that's why you grind just before brewing. And this is why pods, now pod, I should explain for those who don't know what it is. Ellie pioneered a new way of brewing espresso. And it's called the ESE, or Easy Serving Espresso System. And it is essentially a tea bag with a compressed puck of coffee in it. Those are called pods. Ellie pioneered these, and I, I won't get into the reasons for it. It had to do with them trying to broker um, or get super easy espresso into the commercial marketplace before Super Automax came along. Regardless, they are marketing it towards consumers now. You know, when I hear about a place like French Laundry using Illy espresso pods, I just shake my head because here we go again. A restaurant supposed to be the best one in North America, and they're using pre-ground stale old coffee for their espresso program. Excuse my French, but what the f... You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Anyways, there are some common arguments, though, that I've heard online and, and in person from people about why coffee is such an afterthought in restaurants. I guess the most common one I've heard is that once the meal is done, a restaurant, their primary concern is turnover and not much else. You know, they want you out the door after you're done eating. And in addition, there's another factor. Coffee is generally thought of as being bottomless, okay, by consumers at most restaurants. So when a consumer's in a restaurant, they order the meal, they have their meal, they have their cup of coffee, they expect free refills. You know, that's kind of like a North American common thing. So I, I can see the argument why restaurants may not be too concerned about the coffee quality uh, at the restaurants. However, I have some arguments for, and these are really important. The first one is, is that coffee is often the last thing that a restaurant will serve to its customer. It's the last impression that a fine dining establishment can make on their patrons. And if that is the case, you know, as much care and attention should go into the coffee and espresso preparation as, as the restaurant puts into the selection of their wine list or, frankly, the preparation of their food. It's what the restaurant speaks to their customer with. And if the coffee is, is crappy, what are they telling their customers? That's my argument. To counter the, the argument about, you know, turnover and everything else and bottomless cup, I have a couple of suggestions. And I'd love to see a couple of fine dining establishments do this. First of all, why not make it clear that the coffee is not bottomless? Or, you know, hey, offer a choice of coffees. They can have standard drip brew coffee that is bottomless. Or, you know, how about like having a service at the table? Like, for instance, like a balanced brewer right at the table or a vac pot or a French press. You know, someone, a customer orders coffee. You create a French press of it and bring it out. They come in all different sizes. They come in 12-ounce cup sizes, 24-ounce, 32. Why not do that? And here's another thing about espresso in particular. Espresso gets a bad rap. Like if you're a barista and you talk to someone at a fine dining establishment, especially a place that has like a sommelier, a barista is kind of seen as a McJob. 
Like if you say barista to them, they think minimum wage, someone who presses a few buttons and does things. Here's where things have to change at the grassroots. If a restaurant is fine enough that they have an on-staff sommelier, why not make it part of his or her skill set to craft artisan espresso, cappuccinos, lattes, and any other espresso-based drink? However, have a very short list. Nothing is over like seven ounces big. So if they so a customer orders a latte, they get a seven ounce latte. If someone orders a cappuccino, they get a true, honest to God traditional cappuccino. We're talking a five ounce drink, okay, maximum. And train that sommelier. So like if someone orders an espresso, make it an experience. If they order an espresso table service and getting that shot to the table within say 30 seconds, 45 seconds of brew is absolutely paramount. All right. If someone orders a cappuccino, there's latte art on it, but it's built like a cappuccino. So I'm talking one third foam. If someone orders a latte again, there's latte art on it, but it's delivered in such a way that's traditional latte and takes, you know, the sommelier, instead of thinking it's a mick job, they think that there's as much art into the selection and the, of the beans, the brewing and process of the espresso, the preparation and steaming of the milk. And the service that it's going to be as elevated as coffee as as wine is in that restaurant. Send the sommelier to an advanced training class. Get them understanding how complex and how intrinsically beautiful a shot of espresso can be instead of bitter swell that just drunk with a wince. Make the change right at that level. Make the change. At that wine snob sommelier level, that, that coffee is not an afterthought. Coffee is not a minimum wage service thing. But coffee has as much, if not more, complexity than the finest wines when done right. See, that's the key. They don't do it right. So, therefore, there's no respect for the beverage. When it's done right, it blows wine out of the water. That's the key. And if you can get that across at some of the best restaurants in North America, other restaurants are going to follow suit. And I think maybe it does really start with the sommelier. Expand the sommelier's skill set on top of the wines. He has an appreciation for coffees. He has an appreciation for what Kenyas bring to the table. Blueberries, acidity, brightness, what uh, Yemens bring to the table. Chocolate, nutty, floral, you know. He's able to like ring them off just like he does or she does with their wine list. That's a change I love to see. So <laughs> what do you guys think? If you have feedback on the subject, I definitely want to hear it. If you have feedback about why restaurants serve such crappy coffee, or if you know of a restaurant where they do coffee service right, let me know. In fact, I'd love to interview a restaurant or you know a fine dining establishment where they take espresso and coffee. To the next level. If you know one, let me know. Tell them to give me a call at 1-800-332-9477 or send us an email at podcast at coffeegeek.com. And you know what? Before I finish off this topic, there's a, a misconception I want to clear up and a pet peeve I have I want to talk about. When I go to a restaurant, like here in Vancouver, a lot of restaurants have espresso service, which I know is not the norm across North America. It's mainly a Pacific Northwest thing. But one thing that just riles me to no end is um, when I'm sitting in a restaurant and, uh, you know, the table next to me, I'll hear like the couple and it's usually a woman or a man, whatever. It doesn't matter, but it's usually a woman who says it. The man will like the meal will be over and the man will go, would you like coffee or espresso, you know, uh, to finish off your meal? And the woman will go, oh, no, no, I can't take that caffeine. And then she'll order another refill for her Coke. <laughs> Folks, if espresso is done right, okay, a single shot, and I'm talking a 1.5 ounce single shot of espresso, has roughly the same amount or less caffeine than a 12 ounce can of Coca-Cola. We have to get this perception out of the public eye that espresso is just this massive jolt of caffeine. It's not, all right? A 12 ounce cup of drip, drip coffee can have as much as three or four times more caffeine than a shot of espresso. We've got to get this conception out of the public mind. 
there's no, you know what? I'd rather have a nice cappuccino, a traditional cappuccino after a meal at 10 or 11 p.m. than another, you know, refill of my Coke, my Diet Coke. Because I know that first of all, I'm getting something that's going to be better for me than all those chemicals and that aspartame and everything else. And it's not going to keep me up, at least not as much as the Coke and the sugar does. So let's get this misconception out of the air. A single shot of espresso is perfectly fine. We're talking something that has roughly 60 to 80 milligrams of caffeine. A 12-ounce cup of drip coffee can have as much as 350 to 400 milligrams of caffeine. So skip the coffee. Have a couple of shots of espresso. Don't worry so much about the caffeine hit. I know this is a case of perception equals reality. And frankly, I think people's minds screw them over when it comes to this. They'll have a shot of espresso and think they're going to be up all night. And because they think it has this massive caffeine amount and they think they're going to be up all night, chances are they will. But if you know the reality, 60 to 80 milligrams of caffeine versus 350 to 400 in a cup of instant coffee, you do the math. (laughs) Okay, and now the next topic. And this is a topic very near and dear to me, and I've been thinking for a while about doing this topic. (laughs) It's a little off topic in terms of coffee, but I'm going to cover it anyways. And the topic is port. Now... I don't know if everyone out there knows what port wine is. And I have a strong feeling that for the majority or maybe, you know, 50-60% of you out there who do have an idea what port wine is, I think your conception or perception of port wine is probably skewed because you've had either very cheap port or you've had port that's not authentic port wine from Portugal. You've had port that was produced in Canada, the United States, Australia, wherever. And when people taste port wine that way, it gives a really bad impression. Very much like how, you know, crappy shots of espresso give a very bad impression about what espresso is supposed to be about. Most people have a perception that espresso is a bitter, short, little, you know, black, vile drink that Italian dudes in movies drink. And I think a lot of people perceive port as being, you know, a whiny, alcoholy, bitey, wincy kind of drink that people will drink just to get a quick buzz. However, that's not what real port is. That's just one of many reasons why I call port wine the espresso of the booze world. Now, I'm going to give a healthy nod to whiskey drinkers, uh, hell, to even ice wine drinkers. You know, whiskey and scotch is often called sort of, you know, the espresso of of, of the booze world and, and things like that. And I have a healthy appreciation for whiskey and scotch. I, I'm, I'm more particular to Irish whiskey uh, myself. And I certainly can taste the complexities and the interesting flavors in various whiskeys and scotches. And same thing with ice wine. Ice wine is kind of the espresso of the wine world in that just like espresso is a very concentrated elixir, that makes up all the best and the worst that a coffee bean has in a very complex, concentrated, sweet, when it's done right, format. That's what ice wine is. Ice wine takes all the best things from the grape, as well as some of the worst, and maximizes the sweetness and the intensity into a small drink that you enjoy. Not like you enjoy a glass of wine, but you more enjoy sort of like a shot of espresso. However, when it comes to the quote-unquote espresso of the booze world, I think the title should go to Port Wine, partially because of the respect it commands and the ignorance it has in the public marketplace, partially due to the fact that there's a mystique and a ritual behind how it's prepared, how it's stored, how it's certified, how it's served. And definitely due to the taste profiles, the complexities, the amazing characters, the fact that vintage ports just get better and better and better as they mature. But you you don't know when to drink them because it's just, you know, you could drink them two years or three years out of out of uh, after bottling and they're amazing. And then you drink them 10 years after bottling and it's like a different drink, but it's like even more amazing. And then 20 years after bottling, it was like grass. How do I get back on this topic? Let's see. I should maybe start off by saying something that you are probably very much aware of. It's the fact that I am an unabashed espresso lover. 
If I could have no other coffee beverage for the rest of my life, I'd choose espresso as my drink to enjoy. The reason why I love espresso, I've already said, but I'm going to say it again. The complexity is unsurpassed. It is the essence of coffee. And it's finicky, it's challenging, and it's hard or damn near impossible to achieve perfection in it. It constantly gives me something to strive for. That's one of the reasons why I love espresso so much. And in the world of booze, there's port. And, you know, port has a lot of the same things. As far as I'm concerned, the complexity of fine port is totally unsurpassed in the wine world and possibly in the entire alcohol world. Port wine really delivers the essence of what the grape is about with a massive sweetness. And the reason why is because it's fortified with brandy. I find port is extremely finicky, challenging, and it's damn near impossible to achieve perfection with it. Is it sound like a mirror? It is. Let's talk about a few things about port that you may or may not know. Now, there are a lot of wines around the world that are called port wines. They're just like there are a lot of sparkling wines around the world that are called champagne. But in actual fact, just like there is only one champagne, there is only one authentic port. And I think the argument is let is is even more valid in terms of port because of the source of the grapes, the Douro Valley in Portugal. I happen to think that from tasting um, non-port style wines from Portugal, that the Douro Valley produces some of the most intense grapes that the world has seen in terms of stuff that makes wine. That's the starting point. Then another thing about port that maybe you do or don't know is that for the majority of the port houses that produce fine ports, the wine and the grapes, the grapes are actually uh, foot stamped. They're actually foot pressed the old fashioned way, a good old stomping of the grapes. They have their reasons for it. I think partially it's just the ritualistic side, but the port producers really truly believe that this is still the best way to extract a first pressing from their grapes. And you know what? The end product shows it. Here's another couple of tidbits you may or may not know about port. Most port is stored for at least a minimum of a year or two to sort of age. It doesn't matter how young or whatever it is. In fact, let me back up a bit, and I'm going to tell you the different styles of port that you can get and maybe give a short explanation of each one. First, and I'm going to see if I can do this in order of least expensive to most expensive. First of all, there's ruby port. Now, ruby port is kind of just the stuff that is bottled, um, you know, within a year after it's been, you know, turned into wine and, and fortified with brandy. Uh, it's kind of like considered the table port. It's not bad. It, it's interesting stuff, but you may get a bit of an alcoholy taste from it. I don't drink a lot of ruby ports. Then there's vintage character. Now, vintage character is a port that's aged a little longer. Um, they may do, they may age it in wood and they may do some transferring of it. They may do some blending that kind of gives it more of a port that it sort of falls towards one of the more expensive style ports, which is like, you know, a true vintage, but isn't. And they do this through blending and through other things. And, you know, vintage style ports or vintage character ports are interesting, but again, it's something I don't drink a lot of. Next, we move on to crusted port. Now, Crested Port's interesting. You might find it hard to find it on the shelves. But if you do, um, it's interesting. What they do is it's essentially a vintage character or a late bottled vintage port that they'll add some lees to. Now, lees is the stuff in the bottom of, of the barrel or the stuff that's in a, in, in a bottle that you've aged for 20 years. And what this does is it just adds a little bit more complexity and it helps to also mellow out the bottle somewhat, take away a bit of that alcoholy taste. And they're interesting. They're also hit and miss. I've had some crusted ports that were amazing after decanted and I let them breathe a bit. And I've had other ones that just like, it's like, uh, you know, it could be better. It's hit and miss. What's cool about crusted ports is the price range is usually good. A bottle's usually $30 or less Canadian. You know, if you can find one at your local marketplace, I would highly suggest trying it out. Late bottle vintage is the next one up the rung. And those are interesting because I think the late bottle vintages are aged for a minimum of three years. And I think some are aged as long as five years even. Those ones are, in my opinion, one of the better values for the, for the dollar in terms of, uh, port wine. But again, 
it's hit and miss. I mean, I have a couple of 1994 Smith Woodhouse late bottle vintage ports that are just spectacular. I mean, when I bought one bottle and tried it, it was so good that I went out and I bought a case. And it's kind of become like my day port, like my daily port, the whatever the term is, sort of the one that I bring out for various meals as an aperitif. I also keep it in the fridge, and I like to keep it cool. Normally, you wouldn't keep a ruby cool or or a vintage bottle in the fridge. You would drink it at room temperature or slightly chilled. But I do like late ball vintages chilled. And the Smith Woodhouse 1994, which we still have in the BC liquor stores, is amazing. Other ones, like... Seems 1997 and 1998 are the ones that we're seeing on the market right now. And those ones, uh, you know, I'm just, it's hit and miss. It's hit and miss. I mean, I had, um, which one was it? I think I had the Cockburns Late Bottle Vintage from 1997, and that one was really good. But I had the Dow's Late Bottle Vintage 1997 as well. And, you know, to me, that just tasted like a, a ruby port that was a little off. So, I mean, it is still a bit hit and miss. But late bottle vintage is interesting, and it, it essentially gives you kind of a vintage character, but at a much cheaper price. And then we move up, and there's two types of vintage ports. By the way, I, I'm going to talk about Tawny's separately. So I'm going up the, the ladder here, staying away from Tawny's. And the last two and the two most expensive types that you can find on market are single house declared vintages and true vintage port. Now, what are those? Okay. There is a system in Portugal where the houses, the companies that own all the different port uh, producing labels will decide whether or not they've had a truly outstanding year and declare it a vintage year. Okay. now when all the major companies like Atela Flaggate and uh, Grams and Dow's and and uh, Fonseca and other ones declare a vintage year, it becomes a true vintage year port. Now, if memory serves me, the last true vintage years were uh, 2003 was just declared. 2000, in fact, people are saying that 2000 is possibly the best vintage ever, which is amazing. 1994, 1985, I think. And then I think you have to go all the way back to 1970 and 1963. I mean, is 1974, I think 1974, possibly, but I, I don't think so. I, I think it was 1970, 1985, 1994, 2000, 2003, and then the oldest one that you could probably still buy a bottle for is 1963. Those were true vintage years, okay? That's why the port wines from those years are through the roof. I mean, the 1994 Taylor Flagate right now in Vancouver, I think, is almost $200. Because it's an amazing bottle. 1994 was considered one of the best vintage years ever until 2000 came along. I have stocked up big time on 2000s. I have almost 100 bottles of port. And I think about 60 of my bottles are 2000 vintage ports. About a couple of cases, a couple of 6s, a couple of 12s. Um, and I spread it around. And they're not cheap. I mean, the average price for a 2000 right now in BC is about 60 to $80 for a single bottle. But considering what it's going to be like in 5 or 10 years or 15 years, it's, it's an investment. With the 94s, when they first came on market in BC, I believe they were selling for about 45 to $60. And now they're selling for $200 barely uh, 8 years later. It's a bit of an investment for me. Anyways, I'm digressing and I'm talking about this because I wanted to tell you what the true vintage years were. But we also have this thing called house declared vintage or single house declared vintage. Dow is a company, for example, that's famous for just doing a vintage wine almost every year. And you'll also find a lot of the Quintas. Quinta is the Portuguese name for farm. A lot of them declare single year vintages as well. Dow's is, I think Dow is really kind of bad for that. Uh, they're kind of seen in a bad light. They look first of all, Dow produces spectacular ports, but they just seem to declare vintage years almost every year, and all that. And and a lot of the farms do it too. Now this isn't to say that they're trying to like you know steal from you or capitalize on the vintage character or whatever else. So first of all, they produce the wine in the true vintage style, which means it's unfiltered and it's going to age in the bottle. That's key. 
And what they also do is, is that they may believe that their farm or their selection of grapes that they used to make this vintage was spectacular. Now, they don't use grapes from their entire farms to do the vintage wine. They use what their vineyard experts believe are the best grapes from that crop for the vintage stuff. The rest of the grapes are used for other wines, for other for other ports. So I don't want to play it down too much that, you know, just because Dow declares a vintage every few years or every year that you should think that they're just trying to hoodwink us. They're not. I mean, they're putting their best stuff into this and you're getting a true vintage port that ages in the bottle. Now let's talk about a few of the other types of ports. My favorite type of port is the Tawny style port. Tawny port is interesting in that, let me give you a scenario. Let's say Taylor Flagate. They have a spectacular crop year. They believe that their grapes are the best ever. And also their experts believe that their grapes are specifically designed to produce a wine that is going to stand up to really well to long-term aging. That year, Taylor Flagate may decide, guess what? We have a 40-year crop here or we have a 30-year crop here. What does that mean? That means that they're going to earmark part of their crop for specific aging for 30 or 40 years to be bottled as tawny, 40-year-old tawny or 30-year-old tawny. Now, the 20-year-old tawnies and the 10-year-old tawnies, those are the four types. Those ones are a little more common. I'm not saying that they're bad grapes or bad wine. They're, they're spectacular grapes and spectacular wine. But really, the, the big houses only do the 30 and 40-year tawnies. You know, that to them is super special stuff. As I said, you can get a 10, 20, 30, or a very elusive 40-year-old tawny. Now, in my collection, I have a bunch of 10-year-old tawnies, which are just great everyday drinking parts, and you drink those chilled. I like to drink them at about 12 Celsius. I don't even know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm sorry. I have... Uh, I think about six or eight 20-year-old tawnies that I, I bring up for, you know, the special occasions. And I have one 30-year-old tawny from Taylor Frygate that was a gift, actually, from Alistair Dury. Just an amazing gift because you can't buy it in B.C. The B.C. liquor store in British Columbia has no 30 and no 40-year-old tawnies, which I think is a crime, but <laughs> I digress. I can't wait to drink that 30-year-old tawny that that Alistair gave me. It'll be the only second it'll only be the second time in my life that I was able to drink from a fresh bottle. I did have a 30-year-old tawny um in Seattle uh just a couple of months back in a restaurant. However, the bottle could have been open for months and you know, it didn't it didn't blow my mind and it certainly worth, wasn't worth the money. I had asked them if it was a fresh bottle. They said yes. But later on, when I went up to the bar, I actually saw the bottle up behind the bar, and it looked like it was only a third full. And I doubt that they had served up six or eight drinks of it that evening. So I was a little disappointed in that. But anyways, I'm, I'm digressing again. Tawny is a great introduction into port because it's different from rubies and vintage ports in that it has a golden red-brown color to it. And when you swirl it in the light, you can actually see a gold ring at the rim of the liquid. And the taste and the nose is spectacular. 20-year-old tawnies, I think, are some of the biggest pleasures in drinking. In fact, for me, it's almost as good, maybe sometimes even better, than espresso. Uh, enjoying a fine 20-year-old tawny with, you know, some cheese or smoking a cigar or whatever is just a singular pleasure in life. For me, it's just like a mental and virtual orgasm of flavors and sensations from it. And um, I've gotten that also some, from some true vintage ports. I've opened up a 1970, uh, which was amazing. I opened up a 1974 single estate vintage, and that too was amazing. And two times in my life, I've had 1963s, and I had 1963s done right. And I just couldn't imagine something tasting that good both were absolutely spectacular and and tasting those 1963 cemented my love for port and also made me really think about how closely associated in terms of what it gives you uh the taste is that that fine vintage or tawny port has to a fine well-crafted shot of espresso uh, when i talk to people who don't know a lot about coffee 
they have a hard time getting it. They have a hard time understanding that I've had some espresso in my life that to this day I can remember the taste. And when I had them, the taste was so amazing, so complex, so lingering that I would not drink anything after. I would not have a glass of water. I would not do anything for hours while I let the aftertaste roll itself out and fade away. And port is the same thing. When I had my first glass of a 1963, uh, it was, again, a Taylor Flaggate. It was heaven. It was heaven. It was just, I'm thinking about the taste right now, and my mouth is watering from it. And I hope to find that again someday, and I'm hoping that in 20 years or so that all the 2000s I own are going to give me a similar experience. Again, not the same taste, but a similar experience. And then getting back to Tawny's, Tawny's give me much of the same thing. Tawny's give me that complexity, that, you know, syrupy, detailed notes that come from the wine, come from the the barrels, uh, that come from the brandy used to, to fortify the wine, that come from the grapes. There are so many flavors and so many characteristics, and the aftertaste is amazing. And, you know, 20-year-old Tawny's, they can range in price. You can pick them up for as low as about $45 Canadian. And I've seen some as high as 85. The ones that I like, I like the Atama uh, 20-year-old Tawny. That one's pretty good. It's it's a little bit more on the expensive side. That's the Wears Atama. And, of course, the, the Taylor's 20-year-old Tawny is just always amazing. I've bought, I think I've had Taylor's 20-year-old Tawny over the last four or five years. So that means I've had the last four or five years sort of samplings of it. Each year brings out a new 20-year bottle. And it's been consistently amazing. Um, I can't say that for some of the other Tawnies I've had. In fact, you know what? I'm going to wrap up here. I am going to tell you about one other type of port really quick. There's white port. Now, white port, again, I don't drink a lot of. I believe in Portugal, if I remember correctly, when they're drinking white port, they tend to sort of make their own version of a mojito with it. They add a little club soda or a little tonic water, and they add a couple of sprigs of mint. Uh, to it and drink it that way and it's kind of their summer refresher drink and i've actually tried white port that way and it tastes awesome i mean if you're a fan of mojitos this is another way to enjoy that same kind of drink i'm going to wrap this up now but i will give you a couple of my favorite picks in port in case you're going out on the marketplace and you want to try a couple of bottles first of all my favorite all-time ports all times were both the Dow's and the Taylor's 1963 vintage. That was a singular moment in my tasting culinary life. Also, I had a Dow's 1970 and a Graham 1970, and both were amazing. I mean, this was stuff I savored and thought about for days after I had it. I've also cracked open a bottle of the Taylor Flagate 1994. Ugh, man, that wine, that port wine in another 10 years is just going to... Oh, I'm going to have to like have an altar with candles around me or something when I'm drinking it just to like make the moment that much more special. I also love the Taylor's 20-year-old Tawny. It's around 60 bucks Canadian. The Wars Atama 20-year-old Tawny. And here's a little unknown one that you can still get in BC as far as I know. The Gould Campbell 1983 Vintage. Now, this was an off-year vintage. Um, it wasn't a vintage that every house declared. And this one is kind of unknown, and it's relatively cheap for something that's already 22 years old. It's, um, I believe it's about $60 or $55 at the BC Liquor Store. And I bought, I've bought six bottles. I've opened two. Both have just been amazing. You definitely have to decant those things and let them breathe a bit. I usually decant them into a nice crystal decanter I have and let them sit for about an hour before, and let them sit in a cool place. That's key for about an hour before I drink them. And, wow, (laughs) wow. Now, as far as favorite budget choices go, these are all ones, and I'll try to remember the prices for you. First of all, there's the Graham's 10-Year Tawny. Uh, That one, I believe, is usually around $30 to $35. uh, Again, Canadian dollars. All the numbers I'm giving you are Canadian dollars. And that's a nice introduction into Tawny Port. It's, it's, It's powerful. It's flavorful. It's well-balanced, and it's very easy on the tongue for someone who, uh, like, you can't tell that this thing has 20% alcohol. Another one is the Dow's 10-year-old Tawny. That one is a nice introduction as well. 
Uh, in terms of a vintage character port, there's uh, Graham's Six Grapes. That's a nice table port that I use from day to day that I don't want to spend a lot. I believe a bottle's like $22 Canadian, $24. I think in the States I've seen it as low as like $13 or $12. There's Graham's Crusted Port, which is interesting. And this is one of those crusted ports I told you about. That one's about $30, $35. Uh, Fiera Vintage Character. That's an interesting vintage character port. That's probably the only one I've had really good success with, bottle to bottle. F-E-R-R-E-I-R-A. Then there's Cockburn's Late Bottle Vintage, which is uh, 1997. That one, like I said, hit and miss. I had a really good one, and then I had one that just didn't taste as good. And the one that I've had hit, 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 hit with is the Smith Woodhouse Late Bottled Vintage, the 1994 bottling. Anyways, folks, you know what? Port talk on the Coffee Geek podcast. Who would have thought? Before I completely say goodbye and wrap up, I have a couple of emails. I'm going to see if I can read them quick and answer them. First of all, I got an email from Bill Malone. It says, um, I've been drinking coffee and espresso drinks for years, but I find espresso in America is so nasty. Basically, how do I find a good shot of espresso, and how would I know if it is good? Then he has another question, which I'll get to in a moment. Okay, that is a good question. How do you know if you got a good shot of espresso, and how would you know it? First of all, try to see the barista preparing the shot. If they grind for the shot, that's a good thing. If they don't, they just dose out of the doser and pre-ground stuff, that's bad. You heard me at the top of the show talk about fresh ground. It's paramount for espresso. There's, that's the biggest mistake people preparing espresso can make, is not grinding for the shot. That's number one. Number two, the portafilter should always be in the machine when it's not being used. If you see it on the counter, that's a bad sign. Number three, the cup should be preheated. I'm not talking about being on top, and oh, it should be porcelain, never paper. It should be on top of the machine, obviously, but they should be blasting some water in there, too. We're talking about one ounce of espresso. We're talking about one ounce of liquid, and it will cool down very fast. All right? Number four, if you can see um, them preparing the shot, they should be dosing into the, the, the portafilter and tamping. If they don't tamp, it's not a huge loss, but it is definitely one of the variables in a producing quality espresso. Okay? Uh, let's move forward to pouring the shot. If you are if you are in a position where you can actually see the shot pouring, the stream should be a dark, dark brown, not even really golden, with tiger striping. Tiger striping is an even darker kind of chocolate brown stripes that will hang down on the lighter brown stream. When, if that's happening, that's awesome. When you get the cup, it should be obviously full of crema, but the crema should not be pale gold or pale brown. It should be a medium to dark brown. Should be hazelnut notes in there. Um, and near the end of the shot, there may be some blonding. If there's a little blonding on the crema, that's okay if I have it in a restaurant. If I'm judging in a barista competition, that's another matter. Like I said, though, it should be full of crema. should be no black hole in the middle. And it should be served right. Think about it. You're paying $2 for an ounce of liquid. Shouldn't you expect it to be done right? The biggest mistake they make with the grinder, if you see that they're using pre-ground coffee, politely demand that they grind for your shot. Politely demand that they dump out all that ground coffee and grind for your shot. If they don't, maybe you should be thinking about why you're spending $2 on it. So those are the steps you can go and see if you know if you're getting good espresso or not. And, you know, be polite about it. If you see these things not happening in your cafe, speak up. If enough customers complain, they will change. You're going to have to be at the foreground, though. You're going to have to be the bad guy, but do it in a nice way because nice will always get us further than being snobby and nasty. As for your other question, does espresso quality really matter in a latte? After milk and flavoring, who could really tell if the quality is bad? Well, you know what? In in America especially, or in, in Canada, uh, when people are ordering you know, 16, 20, 24-ounce lattes, yeah, espresso doesn't matter. It, you're buying milk flavored with a tinge of coffee. But if you want a traditional drink and even a traditional latte, where it's a drink of a ratio of 3 to 1 or 4 to 1, so three parts milk to one part espresso, or at the max, four parts milk to one part espresso, a good espresso is going to cut through that. 
It is. I mean, if espresso is done right, it's going to cut through and accentuate that. In my house, I drink in this order. Espresso, macchiato, americano, cappuccino, latte. I may have one latte every two weeks. But when I make a latte, I make it right. I make it a double, and that's a two-ounce double. And I add six ounces of steamed milk to make an eight-ounce drink. And I can tell when the espresso is good, and I can tell when it's bad. With a cappuccino especially, I can tell when it is good or when it's bad. And obviously in, in an Americano, I can. It's an Americano. It's just watered-down espresso. And in a macchiato and, of course, in the espresso shot. So, yes, it does matter. But once you start getting up into these gigantic milk drinks, you know, 20-ounce lattes with one shot of espresso, it doesn't matter. So I hope that answers your questions, Bill, and thanks for writing in. Now, my next email is from Mike Walsh. And actually, I remember Mike. In fact, I remember. You know what, Mike? Uh, tell me if this is true or not. I, I seem to remember seeing your name in the homebrewing news group back in the mid-90s. Is that true? Uh, anyways, what's your question here? I have to take exception to the categorization of the Ristretto as a crutch drink. Mark, I know you're a beer fan, and that's like calling fine English barley wine a crutch beer because they throw a lot of barley at it. A Ristretto is a beautiful thing. Mike, you know what? In that, With that comparison, I totally agree with you. But I still am going to call the Ristretto a crutch drink because I've heard the argument that Ristretto is a style. I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. It's just trying to, how can I put it? I talked about how fleeting the perfect espresso is. And that's what both the Ristretto puller and the espresso puller is going for. They're going for the perfect shot of espresso. And the Ristretto puller has discovered that they can get closer to that perfect shot by throwing more substance at less liquid to produce a smaller volume than the traditional espresso puller who's using his 16, 18 grams of coffee but pulling two to three ounces from a double basket. I, t- I taste both products on a regular basis. And I, by the way, me calling the Restrial Crutch drink, I said this before, I'll say it again. In no way am I saying it tastes bad. In fact, I think it's an awesome drink. I think it, uh, the Ristretto method pulls a great shot of espresso. And to be truthful, in my house, I still pull Ristrettos once in a while. I usually pull them when I have guests, and I don't really want to fiddle with my espresso too much, but want to serve up a great shot. Does that not tell you why, where I'm coming from in terms of calling that a crutch drink? When I really want to achieve perfection on the espresso machines here in my house, it's traditional double all the way and i almost never hit it i almost never get that god shot but the few times i have from you know and i'm i'm pouring out two and a half ounces of liquid from 18 grams of coffee and i'm having a shot that rivals the best ristrettos i've ever had that's where it comes from that's where i come from calling the ristretto a crutch drink but anyways mike hey i really appreciate it And my last email is a very interesting one, and this is actually one that I'm hoping maybe some of our listeners can help with. Uh, Again, if you can answer this question, send an email to podcast at coffeegeek.com, and I'll get it on air. The email starts off, Disabled Coffee Drinker has a question. It says, hello, uh, I I have a general question regarding coffee makers with thermal carafes. I have a disability, joint pain that requires an easy, open, and pouring carafe design. Since our coffee makers suddenly gave up the ghost and our craft also needed replacing, I had an idea of combining the two. Not so difficult, right? The Hamilton Beach Stay and Go we purchased had to be returned because I could not manage to twist the port cap off the carafe. Now, I was wondering, after reading numerous comments on your site about difficult carafe caps, I'm wondering if I'm overlooking something obvious. Is there some design requirement that a thermal carafe, which is part of a coffee maker, needs to have a substantially different type of cap from a standalone carafe? Put another way, do you think it's possible to find a coffee maker with a thermal carafe cap that is easy to manipulate? Rose, first of all, thank you for the email. And you want to know something? Uh, This is my bad. This is something I've never thought about before in terms of uh, thermal carafes for coffee makers. And you're right. Every single one I've ever tested 
always screws on very tight and you know the, there has to be an established seal to uh to you know create the vacuum seal and to to keep the coffee hot and it'd be interesting to know i i suppose maybe like a, a carafe design that is a push button because a seal has to be created obviously but what about a system where if you could just press down on a craft to tighten it and then you press a button to loosen it or something where it's built in where it creates a vacuum by pressing a button or a lever that easily moves as far as i know there's nothing on the market that would answer your needs rose but I'm going to put the shed out there to anyone who's listening. If you know of a coffee maker or a thermal carafe that has a very easy closing lid for people with disabilities, fire me off an email and I'll get the news to Rose. Anyways, Rose, thanks for writing in. And folks, I think that's going to wrap up our Coffee Geek and Slash Port podcast for this week. Thanks for the emails. That's great. Thanks for the constant support, the comments over at podcastalley.com. Keep voting for us, folks. It's the uh, 24th today, and I bl- Oop. <laughs> there's one of the super autos turning off in the background. Uh, it's the 24th today, and I believe that uh, coming up August 1st, we're going to need everyone to vote for us again because the votes are all going to be zeroed out. So once again, thank you very much for the support. And if you have an audio question for us, we don't get very many of them, so don't don't be shy. Call in, leave an audio question at uh, 1-800-332-9477. We'd love to hear from you. And again, thank you very much, folks, for listening. I can't believe our subscriber numbers just blows my mind. And I hope you didn't mind half the show being about port. It's not going to be a regular thing. I think maybe like every 10th or 15th show, we may sort of go off the beaten track and cover something that isn't coffee-related. But any feedback is appreciated, and I hope you enjoy the show. And look forward to our next podcast, hopefully coming Wednesday. And uh, we're going to be having Jeanette Chan doing the news segment along with a few other surprises. So take care, folks. Talk to you next time. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions. So they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda Cause they've got to fill that quota And the way things are I'll bet they never will They've got a zillion tons of coffee in Brazil No tea Or tomato juice You'll see No potato juice Cause the planters down in Santa's All say no, no, no The politician's daughter was accused of drinking water And was fined a great big $50 bill They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil